please take your scriptures and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been uh, working our way through 1 Corinthians 13 and looking at uh, what is known as the love chapter. And so let me just read these uh, verses once again, just to refresh our thinking. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for the word of God that you have given to us. But Father, apart from the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, this is nothing more than a book. And we just pray that you would uh, take the truths that you have so graciously had printed for us that we might read and meditate upon. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring these truths to bear upon our souls. Lord, we are a needy people and we pray for the work of your spirit that would not only set us free from the sin that we struggle with, but God, that would glorify you as well. We thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we just sang the hymn, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. And, and I read a, a true story of a preacher that said he was in a worship service and they were actually singing that hymn, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. And his brother-in-law was in the worship service as well. And he said, uh, as the congregation was singing, everybody stopped and just sort of turned around and looked at the brother-in-law. And he thought, well, he's not that great of a singer. Why is everybody looking at my brother-in-law? And then he listened really carefully and he heard that his brother-in-law was just singing at the top of his voice, have mine own way, Lord, have mine own way. And his preacher thought, you know, that is a perfect song for us as sinners who are oftentimes very selfish. And as a matter of fact, this preacher said, you know, um, he said, if we if we really did rewrite the words to this song to really reflect how sometimes how selfish we can be and self-seeking we can be. He said it would probably go something like this. Have mine own way, Lord, have mine own way. Let me be in charge here, at least for today. I really don't need you. Say what you will. I've got my own plan, Lord. You can just chill, you know, and I we chuckle at that. But I think, honestly, we probably too often reflect those kind of things. As one person said, they said, our lifelong love for ourself is the one love affair that most of us never abandon. Our lifelong love affair with ourselves is the one love affair that we oftentimes do not abandon. And I, I don't think I have to say a lot probably to us tonight to really prove this point. I think we understand that. We live there. You know, we see it 
Every day around us, people that are in their careers, always trying to get ahead and trying to get over to the top of everyone else to get what they want. Uh, we see it in the way that people spend their money. I mean, we, we probably have more expendable income than any other time in history. And yet oftentimes that money is spent upon who? Us. It's not necessarily for the public good or even for the glory of Christ. Oftentimes it is oftentimes for us. Or we might see it in the way that uh, families treat each other. Maybe fathers who neglect their children in working too many hours and not spending time with them. Or maybe doing the opposite, pushing their kids to excel. And, and uh, uh, even in a way that's not healthy. Or maybe abandoning their spouse or even taking their elderly parents and just putting them away in a nursing home and not loving for them and caring for them. There's just so many ways. I mean, kids, think about it. Don't you sometimes get very frustrated with a friend that you're playing with or maybe a brother or sister because they won't do things the way you want them to do it? Doesn't that sometimes make you very upset? Maybe you're playing a game and they're not playing the game you want the way you want them to. And what do you do? Ah! You get upset and you get frustrated because that sometimes that's the way that uh, we are. Well, people live that way because we love ourselves so much. And the Corinthians were, were exactly the same way. Now, we don't have the, the time to go through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. You can go home and read that for yourself uh, and see the different ways that the Corinthians struggled with self-seeking and self-centeredness. But let me just give you a few examples. You can jot these down if you want. But even in their theological discussions with one another, they would have great disagreement. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as they were arguing over the whole topic of idols, that caused uh, dissension amongst them. Or maybe even something as wonderful as the Lord's Supper, one of the sacraments of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 21 and 22. We see that there were some Christians who were barging ahead without waiting on their brothers or sisters. Or even in 1 Corinthians 14, when it comes to the worship of the church, which is the greatest thing that we could do as God's people, there were people who were talking when they should have been silent and letting others speak and proclaim the word of God. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, he uses uh, words that are very similar to what I just read here in 1 Corinthians 13. In verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Unfortunately, uh, most of us, I think, have the same trouble that the Corinthian church has. You know, the culture at Corinth was very much one of self-promotion. They exalted the person who could stand up in front of a crowd and could be this great orator or this great speaker. They would, you know, give accolades to a person like that or someone who was very thoughtful, very logical and could reason. They would, they would, uh, well, they would praise such a person. You know, but the person who stumbled in their words, not so much so. Well, you think about our culture, we're the same way. If a person is confident, if a person is sort of promoting themselves, uh, we sort of, we like that person. You know, we think, wow, this is really great. I mean, and, and, and less, well, I was just trying to think of an example of how we do sometimes promote ourselves. But even if you think about a person getting a job, how do we typically view that when a person goes into an interview? They need to go into the interview and they try to do what? 
sell themselves, right? They need to promote themselves. They need to let other people know how great they are because that's how our culture views the way we are to function. Uh, the men in our church are currently going through a book called Ordinary, and it's a really good book. And uh, if you don't have a copy, I'd be more than happy to make sure you get a copy. But it, uh, in the last chapter we were talking about, we were talking about ambition. Now, if, if I mention the word ambition, does that bring positive or negative thoughts? If I said, you know, you're a very ambitious person, you know, would you consider me just having insulted you or complimented you? I think for most of us, we would say that's a compliment. That means I take the initiative. I'm a person who has drive. I reach my goals. But it's interesting that as you look at Scripture and what Scripture has to say about that, it's actually quite the opposite. Because in Scripture, it talks about ambition is the idea of putting yourself forward above everybody else. Now, the, the, the term, it's interesting that the, the Bible translators today, it used to be, in, if you look at older translations, they would just translate it ambition or some other word that means that. But in the modern translations, they translate it as self-ambition. That's what we just read in James chapter 3, talking about the self-ambition uh, that we have. For, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Okay, Um, but that word that is used for ambition or self-ambition, it's actually the same word in the scriptures. And so it's really not seen as a positive thing. As a matter of fact, and and I know I'm sure you probably don't have your finger there, but if you look back at James chapter three and particularly verse 15, uh, this really hit me hard as I was studying this passage. It said this is not uh, well in verse 14. He talked about. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. He said, this is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly. Okay. It's unspiritual. Okay. But then he goes on, he says, it is demonic. It is demonic. So that idea of promoting or or establishing ourselves above others is, is demonic. And so, you know, what was once considered in our culture as, as a vice or kids, that's a fancy way of saying it was a sin, we now consider as a virtue or something that's good or something that we ought to seek to attain to. And we even encourage uh, people to promote themselves. Think about the TV shows you watch. Well, maybe you don't watch them, but the reality TV shows, you know, um, the Apprentice, Master Chef, Survivor, American Idol, just the list goes on and on. You know, what's the whole premise of that show? You have all these other contestants, and you got to promote yourself above all the rest, and you got to shine, and everybody else is leaving islands or getting kicked off the stage or whatever it might be. And your goal is to be the last person standing to make sure you promote yourself. And I know that, like the Greek culture, that is seen as something that's valued. In humility, which the scripture exalts, our culture oftentimes looks down upon. So sometimes we even expect others to cater to ourselves. Do you ever run across that um, at work? You know, maybe those that they just expect you to, to do what they want. Uh, you know, I think that's true with parents and kids. Kids sometimes want Um, parents to do what they want them to do, although they don't always get away with that, but they might try it at least. So in in our Western culture, 
even putting our own self first for some people is seen as a sign of mental health. In the words of one influential psychologist, he says, our highest calling in life is to take loving care of ourselves. Have you ever heard the illustration? You know, you, you guys fly on airplanes? Okay, you fly on airplanes, and what's, what do they say? If the oxygen mask fall down, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to put it on first, and then you're supposed to take and put it on the person that's beside you and help them out. And I don't know how many times I have heard Christians say, well, you know, you gotta take care of yourself, because if you don't take care of yourself, then you're not gonna be able to take care of those people around you. Which sounds great, but that's not necessarily what Scripture says, that we need to, to promote ourselves. Now, I do want to bring a little bit of a balance here, and I think Jonathan Edwards helps us to do that. Jonathan Edwards, a, a preacher in early America, uh, said that uh, self-love is not necessarily completely evil in and of itself. I mean, Scripture says, love your neighbor, How? As yourself. And so he says, self love is not necessarily wrong. He said, God did make us to love ourselves. If nothing else, you see that in the sense of self preservation. You know, we, we uh, don't just go put our hands, kids, do we, on a hot stove, right? Or we don't take a knife and just cut our hands. No, that would be foolish, wouldn't it? You know, God made us to, to know better than to do that. So there is a sense in which we ought to take care of ourselves and to love ourselves. But he says, but what did happen in the fall was this, that before the fall, we sought to glorify God. You see Adam and Eve loving each other and serving each other. And, but they said, but after the fall, what happened was everything in their life was condensed down to one thing, and that was love of self. That no longer was there a love for God, no longer was there a love for other people, but instead, the only thing that was left was a love for self. And so, we, we see here, as we come to 1 Corinthians 13, 5, that love does not insist on its own way. And, and so, unfortunately, many of our attitudes and actions are exactly the opposite of what they ought to be. And as a result, our hearts are constricted in our flesh to only love ourselves and not to love other people. And that's one of the reasons why 1 Corinthians 13 challenges us as it does. All of the things it tells us that love is and, and does are almost impossible for us to do. Whereas all the things that it tells us that love never does, aren't those the things that we usually find ourselves doing? This is because we love ourselves more than we love other people or even God. Well, every part of 1 Corinthians 13, as you look at it, as we said, 1 Corinthians 13, you look at love, it's like looking at a diamond and you see multiple facets of what love is. But you also see a picture or a portrait of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that we read that love is or is not, we see in Christ's life. And we know that Jesus never insisted on having his own way but he went the way to provide salvation for us. The Father, we read in Scripture, sought to chose a people for himself. And Jesus Christ said, Father, I will go to earth and I will lay down my life and I will pay the price 
that you might have those people for yourself. That I will go and I will redeem the chosen people for you. And so he did not seek to do his own will. He actually sought to fulfill the Father's will and, uh, and to glorify the Father. And that's why we read in Philippians chapter 2 that we read earlier where Paul said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We see that in verse 4. And then he proceeded to trace the story of the incarnate Christ as a perfect example of how we are to live for others and not for ourselves. And Jesus let go of the glory of heaven that he might come to earth and that he might humble himself uh, to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so if we ask at what point our Savior refused to insist on his own way, the answer is at every point, at every point he sought to do the will of his Father. And yet, there is one particular moment, I think, in, in Scripture where we see probably him doing the will of the Father that it just sort of uh, might just slap us in the face, and that is in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that Jesus went to the Garden. We should read that in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 and following. And he goes to the, the, the um, Gethsemane, to the Mount of Olives, which just looks across to the city of Jerusalem. And, and when he got there, he, he sat down and he prayed. And then he went into the garden a little farther and he took Peter, James and John with him. And he had a prayer meeting, but this wasn't an ordinary prayer meeting. He, it says that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled in, in verse 37 of Matthew 26. And, and those words show us that there was extreme emotion in Jesus. He said to his disciples who were close to him, he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me, we read in verse 38. And it's in those agonizing moments of prayer as Jesus was confronted with the ter terrible suffering that awaited him, we watch a glimpse of how much it cost the Lord to save us. As he, as he wrestled that night. Jesus was facing the pains of death by crucifixion, which would have been awful. And I'm sure you've heard descriptions of how people have described what crucifixion was and the physical torment of that. But I think Richard Baxter, one of the Puritans, uh, stated it best when he said, our Savior's agony was not from the fear of death, but from the deep sense of God's wrath against sin which he, as our sacrifice, was to bear in greater pain than mere dying. I think sometimes when we think about Christ uh, bearing the wrath of God, that we think of Jesus as standing there with a shield, you know, and we're behind him and he's standing there and the wrath of God is being poured out and he is deflecting that wrath of God from us. But that's really not the picture. The picture is really Christ standing there and taking the wrath of God upon himself for us, even to the point where when God turns to us, there is no wrath left. It is fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. So we were having a discussion in our household, and I said, well, there's nothing, somebody, I thought one of our kids said, 
there's nothing that's free. And I said, well, salvation is free. And my daughter, Sarah, walked into the room and she said, well, no, not really, Dad. It was just free to us. It wasn't free to Jesus. Jesus paid the full price. And I think, you know, as Christians, we forget that. We oftentimes forget that Christ suffered. You know, and so as he's sitting there agonizing over this, the cross that he's going to be facing, we read in Luke's account of the gospel, in Luke 22, verse 44, that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so while he was under the strain of, of this kind of suffering, Jesus came to his father, and what did he pray? He said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we know that um, as you think about the cup, in the Old Testament, there's really two pictures of the cup. There's really the cup of rejoicing. We read that like in Psalm 23, where um, it talks about the blessings that overflow from the Lord at the end of Psalm 23, or Psalm 16, talking about the cup of salvation. But there's another cup in the Old Testament that's oftentimes conveyed, and that is the cup of cursing, such as the cup of wrath that Jerusalem drank in the days of the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 51, 17, or the cup of judgment that Jeremiah prophesied for the nations in Jeremiah 25, 15. And it was that cup of cursing, that cup of judgment that Jesus Christ took upon himself for us. So it's not surprising that Jesus asked his father, Lord, is there another way? Is there an alternative? But knowing that there was no other way, that he had to purchase a people for his father, he gladly took that upon himself. And so on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus could have insisted on his own way. He could have just said, I'm not doing this. But he did not do that. He, he the suffering son, suffered to do the will of the Father, demonstrating the submissive love that he had to the Father that he loved so much. And so he said... Um, Actually, he said what we read in Matthew 6, you know, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, what? Thy will be done. That's what the son prayed. He said, Father, your will be done. And so now... As we sit here in Andover, Kansas, 2,000 years plus later, we know that Jesus Christ enables us and empowers his people to live with that same kind of love. A love that doesn't insist on its own way, but, another, but a love that puts other people first. John Calvin said, he said, it's very clear that he lives the best and holiest life who lives and strives for himself as little as he can, and that no one lives in a worse or more evil manner than he who lives and strives for himself alone and thinks about and seeks only his own advantage. Sadly, what Calvin called the best and the holiest of life is rare, and I would even say 
in the church. I mean, I, I am sad to say as I think about these words and I think about, you know, I have like the greatest wife in the world and she is fantastic. She's not perfect, but she's pretty incredible. But there are times where I just get frustrated because she doesn't do what I want her to do the way that I want her to do it. And I want to go and I want to sulk and I want to go, you know, uh, do my thing because she didn't give me whatever I wanted. Well, you know, I wish I could stand up here and say I was alone and no one else has ever done anything like that. But we do struggle, do we not? It's even when God gives us good gifts and other people or circumstances that he gives to us, sometimes we have set our affections and our hearts upon some idol and we want that. And if we don't get that, then sometimes we want to punish other people or we want to just show our dissatisfaction or frustration. But Jesus Christ died that instead that we might love others. But it's not as common as we think. I think of Paul's words to Timothy when Paul as he was commending the ministry of Timothy, he, he said these words. He says, I have no one like him who will, genuine, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You hear that? You know, he said, there's not a lot of pastors, there's not a lot of people like Timothy who are genuinely concerned about you, not about himself, but about you. And, uh, and oftentimes I think that is so much where we are. So I guess I want us to think tonight as we think about that, is the Holy Spirit convicting us of maybe the blindness that we have and the needs towards other people? Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker you've been talking to, maybe it's a neighbor, and you just know that there is a way that God Spirit wants you to reach out and to show love to that person, and yet you sought not to do that? Or is the Holy Spirit challenging you to reach out to someone and to meet a need in their life, but you're resistant because you know at whatever point you reach out to them, it's going to cost you greatly? As a matter of fact, you don't even know maybe how great it's going to be. You just know that you're going to have to lay aside your own wishes and your own desires. Maybe it'll cost you time-wise. Maybe it'll cost you financially. And so you've resisted that because you didn't want to suffer in that way just to show love to others. We find it hard, I think, to keep on loving people who don't love us back. We get worn out caring for people who have critical needs. Even when we try to love other people well, self-love just sometimes gets in the way. There was an illustration I read and I thought, wow, that's a good illustration. Um, someone said, our self-love is like an oversized sofa bed that's too large for a studio apartment. Now just visualize that. You can visualize that, can't you? You know, the sofa bed that's too large for a studio apartment. No matter how many times we rearrange the furniture, the sofa bed's still so big, uh, or still too big. So it is with our self-love. Even when we try to put other people first, there is still too much of us getting in the way. Amen? You know, and sometimes we seek to do something kind for somebody. We seek to love somebody else. But, you know, we don't maybe even realize it. But the whole time we're thinking about what we can do for somebody else, in the back of our minds, we're also going, 
but I got to make sure that that's going to be to my advantage too. So how can I help them and minimize the cost to me? But that's not the love that Jesus Christ showed to us. Jesus showed a love that is not only willing to suffer, but gladly would suffer to accomplish the will of his Father. So what we need is more the love of Jesus Christ. We can only give to others what we ourselves have received. And as we receive the love of God, we can then show that extravagant love to others as well. The Son of God has set aside his own will to do the work that was necessary for our salvation. Now, in the power and in the presence of his spirit, we can show his love to others as well. In fact, that's what it means to love. To love is to be towards others, as one person put it. It's, uh, it is to put others first. It's the opposite of that, that self-love. And so that's why Jesus says repeatedly, this is my commandment that you love one another. And then he even goes on, he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another in John 13, 34. Now, when we read that, a new commandment, Jesus is not saying, I've never given you this commandment before. As a matter of fact, this is brand new. It's hot off the press. You've never heard this. It's not been in the Old Testament. Nowhere. It's just, this is the first time. You know, that's not what he's saying when he says that I've given you a new commandment. But what he's saying is, is that our call to love others comes with a new power, the power of the work of his Holy Spirit, the person the power of his person and his work. So Christ dying on the cross to pay the penalty, not only for our selfish sins, but also then he, he rose again from the dead. He conquered that sin and the sin that we wrestle with to love others. And now on the basis of his death and his resurrection, Jesus gives his people the power to love others. So in what way is God calling you tonight to love someone? Loving the way Jesus loves means being less insistent on our own way and more consistent in putting other people first. And we have countless opportunities to do that. You know, it may be it's a roommate. Maybe uh, you can show love to your roommate by not leaving food in the refrigerator that, you know, turns green and eventually gets fuzzy and then begins to smell funky. I don't know. Or, you know, leaving things out on the counter. Kids, you know, you can show love by letting your brothers and sisters go first with something or by letting a friend decide what to play next. Right. Or by stopping uh, whatever they're doing right away and go and do what your mom and dad tells you to do. Kids, do you do that? Your mom says, hey, I need you to go clean your room. What do you, what do you want to do when your mom says that? You know, we want to shrimp our shoulders and just sort of walk off and protest. But love says, yes, mommy, I would love to do that. Or yes, mommy, I will do that. Maybe that's what love says. But, you know, nonetheless, it seeks to obey. And husbands and wives can show love by rearranging their lives to spend time with each other and to love one another. And at the end of a long day, to spend some time conversing and talking 
to one another. Or maybe it's just spending, making time in your life for a friend who's going through a difficult time, someone who needs to talk, someone who has, has had great loss in their life, and they're just struggling on this earth. And to go and to say, hey, could we have a cup of coffee? And, and not really to have any agenda, but just to spend time with that person and to show them that love. That's what Christ calls his church to do, not insisting on our own ways, um, instead to do his ways. Well, as we try to love the way that Jesus loves, not insisting on our own ways, we should pray what Jesus prayed. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Well, that, that's the kind of prayer that inspired Adelaide Pollard, who was the person who wrote the hymn, Have Thine Own Way, Lord, back in 1902. Pollard was hoping to go to Africa to become a missionary, but could raise sufficient funds to make the trip. And all of her plans for how she was going to serve the Lord just sort of fell apart. And brothers and sisters, I think if there's anything that is harder is when you really think the Lord is causing you to do something and then he closes that door. Sometimes that's very difficult to trust him in those times. And Adelaide Pollard was struggling with that as she, she was convinced that the Lord wanted her to go to Africa and yet the doors were shut. And so in a deep discouragement, she ended, attended a prayer meeting, a service where she overheard an old woman say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do. It, it really doesn't matter what you do with us, Lord. Just have your own way with our lives. And that night, she sat down and she wrote these words. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Hold over my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see. Christ only always living in me. That's the heart's desire of someone who wants to love the way that Jesus does. That he would live in us so completely that his love would flow through us and into the lives of his people. This will never happen as long as we keep insisting upon our own way and wanting things and wanting the control that we think we need in our lives. We must surrender ourselves to the Lord to do his will knowing he will give us his strength. Amen. Let's take just a moment, if we could at this time, and just to bow our heads and just silently pray to the Lord and say, Lord, how do you want me to respond to your word, which you have given to us tonight? So take just a few minutes and let's uh, quietly meditate upon the word of God. Our Father, we thank you for not only the commands to love others, but we thank you that you give us the ability to do that. But you know that we struggle each and every day. We are just so prone, our God, to, to think about ourselves first and foremost. But we pray for the, your continued work in our hearts. We pray, O oh Lord, when we are tempted to think about ourselves, that your spirit would speak to us and remind us that we are children of the living God, that our focus has not been condensed to only think about loving ourselves, but we have been set free in Christ to love you, to love others, 
And also to love ourselves, yes, but not first and foremost. Oh Lord, we pray that you would remind us of this sermon on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, and that you would cause us to run to you each and every day, trusting in you. And we pray that you would make us a church that has the reputation of being a church that loves, not only loving one another in the body, not only having families that love, and but also, Lord, loving the community and sharing the hope of Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Lord, for this, and we pray this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.